Welcome everybody to the Nectar podcast, Dangerous Ideas in Drug Development. Um, we um, are very um, excited to have Jackie Fairley here from Star Pharma, um, an Australian biotech um, biotechnology company um, today joining us. Uh, before we start as usual, we will um, just go through a brief disclosure statement um, pertaining to Nectar, the organization, as well as both myself and Dr. Liu. Um, with regards to Star Pharma, that our institution has received funding for research from Star Pharma, and we have no personal conflicts of interest. Uh, Jenny, do you have anything else to add from disclosures? Yes, I've received travel reimbursement from Star Pharma to present their recent trial, and I'm the principal investigator of the uh, Dendroma SN38 trial that's open. Great. Thank you very much. So, um, uh, Jackie, uh, well, over to you uh, right now. Um, you know, what we do in the podcast sometimes is just to have a little bit of an introduction so the listeners can understand who you are, your professional journey, and um, and how you've come to be in the position that you are to be telling us about your exciting technology. Thank you, Anthony. Um, yeah, so my name's Jackie Fairley. I'm the Chief Executive of Star Pharma. And in fact, um, I've been the Chief Executive of Star Pharma for 17 years, which is a little unusual for a listed, um, an ASX listed company. The average duration of a CEO is four and a half years. Um, uh, in our industry, obviously, the cycle times are a little longer. Um, I have a, a slightly unusual background for human therapeutics development um, in that I started my career as a veterinary surgeon. Um, but was in fact a pretty poor surgeon, the truth be known. So I fairly quickly uh, decided I wanted to join industry and do an MBA. And so I joined a company that was called Commonwealth Serum Laboratories, um, which then became CSL, um, did an MBA, uh, worked in another great Australian pharmaceutical company, FH Folding & Co., where I had a lot of exposure to oncology agents, generic oncology agents that we shipped all around the world and developed and shipped all around the world. Um, and I joined Star Pharma in 2000, uh, 2006. And um, at that time, the focus was uh, new chemical entity development, so antivirals. Um, but with my background in oncology and generic oncology, um, I was quite keen to explore the drug delivery aspect, which is where we've ended up uh, building quite a lot of our portfolio. Fascinating. Um, so so tell us, if you will, uh, and I'll hand over to, to Jenny as well, a, a little bit then about Star Pharma in general, um, the, the scope of the company, and then I guess we can segue into the more oncological aspects and the technology. Yeah, so Star Pharma has an interesting origin. It was founded uh, actually out of CSIRO technology, uh, the Dendroma technology on which the company is founded, which is a, a large, highly branched polymer, um, was originally worked on uh, in CSIRO. And so it was a spin out of CSIRO and then listed on the ASX, I should say. Um, and as I said, originally the focus was on development of novel antiviral compounds. And we actually have... Um, a number of anti-infective products, including two, uh, two particular products which are on market. One's an antiviral nasal spray, and one is a topical vaginal gel, which uh, has both antiviral activity, but also anaerobic bacterial activity. Um, and those products are marketed and uh, typically by third parties in um, a variety of markets registered in more than um, 30 countries for one product and 50 for the other. 
Um, but we, as I mentioned, we have developed this drug delivery platform, which is using our Dendroma technology, whereby we attach um, either conventional chemotherapeutic drugs or we can attach antibodies or indeed radionuclides to the Dendroma scaffold. And in doing so, we create not only novel versions of those drugs, which have a number of benefits that we'll talk a bit more about in a moment, but um, it actually allows us to modify the biodistribution, um, reduce side effects importantly through re reducing off-target toxicity um, and also to uh, improve efficacy. So we have a number of programs, three um, phase two oncology programs of our own, uh, including the SN38 program that, um, that Jenny mentioned earlier. Um, but we also have partnered programs with companies like Merck and Genentech and AstraZeneca, where they use our technology to achieve things they can't achieve on their own uh, or to improve existing drugs. Yes, certainly the technology has been quite uh, promising and we've seen, uh, you know, both responses and tolerability that reflects the preclinical data in these trials. Could you explain, Jackie, how you came about to choose the specific chemotherapy drugs uh, such as SN38, cabazitaxel, docetaxel for your studies? So typically we focused on um... Uh, widely used chemotherapeutics, so, um, you know, docetaxel and, and carbazitaxel and um, uh, an irinotecan. And we what we've done is we've attached the metabolite of irinotecan to the dendroma, not irinotecan itself. Um, and uh, we chose them because they were widely used in relatively common cancers and in their original form. So in the case of Carbazitaxel, Jevtana, the Sanofi product, um, Taxotere for docetaxel and Camptasar for irinotecan. Those original drugs had toxicities or solubility issues, which we believe the Dendroma technology could assist with. So both of the taxanes are extremely insoluble. And so they need to be formulated with polysorbate 80, which is a detergent. Um, and as a result of that, um, the anaphylactic reactions that some patients experience despite pretreatment with corticosteroids and antihistamines um, can be quite problematic. And so through our Dendroma technology, we were looking to solubilize those molecules. So solubility was one um, aspect we looked at. And also we typically looked for products that had um, in the FDA parlance, um, black box warnings. So severe toxicities, be they hematological toxicities or other toxicities that we felt that the dendroma would potentially overcome through modifying either the um, metabolism or the biodistribution. So the dendroma is like a lattice for, for, for our listeners. That uh, And what, what's it made out of? At least what, what can you tell us it's made out of? So it's a biodegradable, biocompatible, basically a scaffold, if you like, an inert scaffold to which you can... Um, we've developed the ability to very precisely attach things to. So the the products that we'll talk about in a moment, what we call DEP Carbazitaxel. So DEP stands for Dendroma Enhanced Product. DEP Carbazitaxel is a dendroma scaffold, which is made up of polylysine. So it's biodegradable and biocompatible. Um, and we attach to that 32 molecules of the drug Carbazitaxel. In the case of the SN38 product, which is 
the active SN38 to the active metabolite of irinotecan, we're attaching a similar number of those SN38 molecules to the dendroma. And in these two products, we don't have a targeting moiety. However, we do have antibody drug conjugate versions using a dendroma. And we also can use the dendroma for um, radiotheranostic. So we can have targeted um, a targeting group, for instance, HER2 targeting antibody or nanobody, um, as well as radionuclides. So the scaffold is quite um, versatile in terms of what you can attach to it. And Star Pharma's expertise in is in, in actually very precisely attaching it and then analysing it um, and making it for, uh, for human use. So you can titrate it up and down the, the, the amount attached. It's fascinating, right? Okay. Yeah, they're built in layers, actually. And so we call them generation one, generation two, generation three. And so the number of drugs you attach to the surface is a function of typically the number of generations, so the size of the scaffold. Um, and so these particular products that are, are that, that are being trialled in your site have been designed to selectively accumulate in solid tissue tumours. Their size has been designed so that they get forced through those gap junctions in the blood vessel walls into the tumour tissue, but are too large um, to get out again. And essentially when in the tissue, drop the, drop, drop the drug load. Yeah, so it sounds like um, it's a very versatile technology. And uh, Jackie, you mentioned antibody drug conjugates, which is a very hot uh, topic at the moment. Do you think this dendroma technology could be used to sort of deliver ADCs? Because we are seeing a lot of um, toxicity with some of these ADCs coming through trials. Uh, so we've actually already made, and in fact, a number, in fact, our partnered program with um, uh, with Merck is based on ADC usage of uh, our dendroma technology. So absolutely, they can be used um, in ADCs. And interestingly, some of the, most of the early ADCs are built using linear polymers, which have relatively few sites of attachment. So the drug antibody ratio or the DAR is usually a relatively low number. I think in the early, I think the early sort of CAD siler, I think it's about two or between three and four or two and four drug molecules per um, ADC. We can actually load 16 or 32 drug molecules. So we can put far higher payload of drug on it, on our dendromas. Um, but we also can, um, you know, control the, you know, we can use different sized dendromas and we can have um, a combination of one targeting group or multiple targeting groups. Um, and we can use a whole variety of targeting group types. So full antibodies, um, antibody fragments, nanobodies, small molecule targeting groups. And that versatility or, or flexibility, if you like, of what you can attach to this inert carrier scaffold is is really sort of part of the um <clears throat> that the attraction so that depending upon the payload you can scale up and down <clears throat> the um, number of molecules and the size of the the dendroma and the stability and the linkers that we use control the release of drug and so there are many theories I know and a lot been written about the theories of toxicity of ADCs, but part of the toxicities um, 
uh, as I understand it, are uh, sort of described because of loss of drug or drug drug coming off the construct before it's actually getting to the tumour. And so dendromas do offer the ability to have, um, you know, sort of tightly bound payloads and also uh, to achieve internalisation uh, and bystander effects. Absolutely. Yeah, it sounds really um, promising. Um, I guess it would be good to for our listeners to understand a little bit more about the trial that's open at the moment. Certainly, it's a trial that we've had a lot of Nectar cross-referrals for the DEB-SN38 trial. Did you want to talk the listeners through sort of the design and um, enrolment and progress on the study? Uh, yes, yeah, sure. So um, this product we call DEPIR and OTCAN, which is a bit of a misnomer because really it's DEP-SN38, the, the drugs that are attached to the dendroma. As I said, um, 32 molecules of SN38 attached to the dendroma. Um, that um, has been, is, is currently in, a, uh, in trials in around six sites um, across, um, mainly in the UK, but also the, the Kinghorn Centre in Sydney, of course. Um, and that um, we've been through a process of a fairly standard um, dose escalation phase one study um, uh, where we accepted um, a variety of solid patients with solid tissue tumours, a range of solid tissue tumours, clearly given the usage of irinotecan both as a monotherapy and in combination in colorectal cancer, we were keen to see colorectal um, um, cancer patients enrolled. Um, and so we uh, have enrolled a range of um, tumor types um, as and including as well as colorectal, where we've seen some very interesting data that I can talk about in a moment. Um, we've also seen some really nice responses, um, particularly in um, ovarian cancer, uh, including mainly platinum resistant ovarian cancer, uh, and also gastroesophageal cancers and a smaller number of patients in um, pancreatic cancers. So the study is coming to its uh, coming to a conclusion. It's a it's been a uh, the phase two, what what we would refer to as the phase two or the expansion part of the study has included a monotherapy cohort and there've been a couple of dosage regimens which have been utilized three weekly dosage and every second week dosage. Uh, and we have also looked at the usage of Depir and OTCAN in a standard Folfiri combination uh, and then recruited patients into uh, that which were, um, uh, I think, almost exclusively colorectal. So we have recently released interim results um, and um, and are very uh, grateful to Jenny for her presentation of the poster, which covered the um, interim results for this study um, at a recent meeting in Boston, which was an, a combination of AACR and um, I think yes. it was NCI. Yeah, it was the uh, triple meeting, AACR, NCI, EORTC, or the targets meeting. And yes, it was um, got a fair bit of interest there. So yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so in that study, we have enrolled in in the overall study, we've enrolled just over 100 patients. So um, and that's across monotherapy and the 5-FU combination. 
Um, and uh, as I said, we've, you know, a variety of solid tissue tumour patients have been enrolled with a focus in particular on expanding numbers in colorectal cancer patients and also ovarian cancer patients in the colorectal cohort. Um, they were quite heavily pretreated, an average of four treatment regimens and an average of 31 treatment cycles prior to trial entry. Um, and interestingly, or perhaps not surprisingly, 97% of patients had had prior irinotecan therapy um, uh, and had progressed prior to coming into our study. Um, so we had around 38 patients in the monotherapy arm or 38 eligible patients in the monotherapy arm. And we've seen quite durable responses of up to 72 weeks in uh, colorectal patients um, and a disease control rate of 48%. Um, and interestingly, we saw none of the severe diarrhea, which is commonly seen with irinotecan, and no cholinergic syndrome. Um, and, and as I mentioned, the dendroma has SN38 attached to it, not irinotecan. And so we avoid that toxic metabolite of irinotecan in the gut. Mm, yes. And we're getting uh, reports from the patients on the trial here that they did, you know, many of them had had prior full theory and comparing the experience on full theory versus uh, on the trial found this trial uh, much more tolerable. So I guess in from a clinician point of view, I'd be really keen to see how this plays up against full theory in a head-to-head -head trial. Um, yeah, what do you think about that? Well, I guess the, um, I mean, Star Pharma um, is a, you know, relatively small Australian biotech company. And so we need to think carefully about the sort of trial designs and, and clinical programs that we, um, that we undertake. Uh, we're obviously, you know, we're very excited about the results that have been generated. And um, obviously there've been a number of very, positive responses at, at your site and, and also others. And in the combination arm, um, you know, you know, very, um, uh, yeah, sort of interesting responses in patients who had previously progressed on standard of care options um, and had previously had irinotecan, and yet we still saw um, an objective response rate in the combination arm of 43%, uh, beg your pardon, that's 43% in, um, in ovarian cancer, but also in the combination arm of colorectal, we saw um, uh, some an objective response rate of 20%. Um, so I think in terms of the further clinical studies, we are actually engaged in some discussions in relation to licensing um, this product. Um, we, we currently, uh, we don't have plans to run a head-to-head -head study in colorectal in a Folfuri regimen. Um, we are quite interested because we've got some interesting preclinical data in combination with immuno-oncology agents um, where we've seen a potentiation of the effect. We are interested in um, potentially uh, sort of smaller um, cohorts of perhaps that or perhaps a sort of an expansion or further, you know, sort of getting some additional numbers, but whether it would be a fully powered head-to-head -head study of standard Folfuri, that that's probably more something that um, I think ult the ultimate commercial marketing partner would potentially undertake. But I absolutely agree it would be very interesting. And I think the side effect profile difference is really quite striking as you know, as you know better than I. Mm. 
uh, I, I think they're interested. It's very interesting about the um, um, immuno-oncology potential. Certainly some of the toxicity of these drugs relates to the fact that they're circulating and if they could be localized in the tumor microenvironment to a greater extent, and there's different strategies to do that, that would certainly potentially reduce the reduce toxicity. That sounds like a very promising um, um, avenue to go down. We haven't talked about the depth capacity tax. I, I was just looking at your um, uh, press release um, uh, in terms of October 23rd. Um, it, there seems to be quite some nice promising data in advanced gastroesophageal cancer and prostate cancer. And where are we going with that sort of, do you think? So I think what well, the strategy that we've employed for all three of these clinical candidates is similar in that that we um, I guess our plan was to undertake this initial proof of concept clinical um, exploration, which we're coming to the conclusion of now, having mm. escalated and then expanded in a number of tumor types where we've seen some interesting responses. Um, and we're engaged in discussions in relation to all three of the products. Um, uh, and so there's obviously potential for further sort of clinical studies. Mm. Um, but in terms of the results that we've generated thus far in in-depth cabazitaxel, the primary cohort that we initially uh, enrolled was um, uh, was castrate-resistant prostate cancer, obviously. We didn't need to pretreat the patients with corticosteroids because we didn't have any of the polysorbate 80 in the formulation. Uh, we did see some... Uh, and and we don't. It's not a head-to-head -head study, so we are drawing conclusions in comparison to um, previously reported data by Sanofi in in larger, you know, sort of larger studies than ours. But certainly, in terms of progression-free survival data, we got um, that exceeded that quite substantially compared to Jevtana. Um, the overall survival was similar. The PSA reduction, interestingly, was quite a lot better, 52.4% for Depcarbazitaxel versus 29.5% for Jevtana, um, 20 milligrams per metre squared. And there was also a striking difference in terms of reduced hematological toxicities in that patient cohort, as we saw in others. Um, and, and yes, you're right, we've seen some interesting data for Depcarbazitaxel also in, um, interestingly, both in ovarian, but also in gastroesophageal cancer. And the gastroesophageal data will be presented. In fact, we've we've just had a poster accepted in the US in January um, at a gastrointestinal um, meeting there. And that has shown some very interesting uh, results and uh, you know, sort of in, in, in patients who um, uh, were progressing rapidly um, uh, and a disease control rate of 80% of patients and objective response rate of 30% of patients um, in that quite, that was quite a small cohort. Mm, great. And obviously a very trendy thing, which you have alluded to at the moment is, is theranostics. Um, uh, and recently there was... Um, you know, Eli Lilly bought out Point Therapeutics um, uh, for their Theranostic platform and know-how. It seems like, and, and as far as I understand, that was partly based on a, a simple chelated technology. It seems like uh, with um, some of the posters you presented with the HER2 nanobody and, and the DEP conjugate, you're getting very nice uh, dose symmetry um, in the preclinical models. Um, so... 
Um, it looks like that might be something. Uh, is that going to transition into humans or at a moment where you're just at that inflection point between the lab and the clinic? Well, currently, yeah, so currently it is preclinical. And, and we actually, that poster, um, I was not at the meeting in the US, but I understand that poster did attract quite quite a lot of attention. And yeah, absolutely, I think there have been quite a few transactions in the radiotheranostic space mm. um, and quite a lot of interest Um in it recently, so it is our intention to yeah, to take these products forward into the clinic. The di the radio diagnostic, the HER2 zirconium um, product, would be the one that we would be you know is the is the sort of further advanced and the one that we would probably take forward um, first. Um, but we uh, you know. We are also in discussions with other parties about other targets. So are we focused on her too, um, with a view to, you know, potentially um, providing some additional um, uh, imaging and staging and diagnostic capability with the with the diagnostic and then with a view to a paired therapeutic. Um, but there are also other targets which uh, of, are of interest um, in that sort of radiotheranostic space, which we are also in, um, exploring. So I think they they will go to the clinic, um, and I would expect that there would potentially be some partner involvement in that um, mm -hmm. as well. Great. Jenny, any questions that you want to ask Jackie in a public forum to <laughs> yeah i guess i wondered um staff farmers sort of strategy with trials and do you think of expanding to other trial sites within new south wales or australia and um, what's the plan moving forward so the strategy is very much dependent upon the specific trial um as i said we're sort of coming towards the end of the dep sn38 study and you know we're very grateful obviously for the you know for the um involvement of, of your site and from you both in in the design of that study and and the conduct of the study and we're delighted to hear of the positive experiences of of the patients at your sites um at this stage we don't plan to expand we don't plan to open up any further sites on that study in australia the radiotheranostics work we are actively exploring you know where that could be done um, and, you know, as, as you know, that's a sort of that has some rather more specialist capabilities and different um, sort of trial needs than um, perhaps more conventional therapies. So we, you know, we're sort of keen to explore that um, moving forward. And, and in that situation, would certainly look at Australian sites. Um, but at this stage, we're not expanding either Depcarbazitaxel and Depirinotecan have both now completed recruitment. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I guess just to wrap up, your non—is there are there any develops in your uh, developments in your non-cancer portfolio? It seems like you've got an income stream um, from the nasal spray, and you talked about that. I'm very interested, certainly in this COVID era, as to um, and and other uh, other people are trying to develop nasal sprays um is there um are there further developments with regards to the nasal spray in terms of um or other applications of non-cancer applications of your technology that you're actively exploring um at the moment 
So at, in relation to the nasal spray, we are continuing to roll it out into other territories. So we have, I think, about 35 countries approved now. It's approved in Europe, in the UK, um, uh, unfortunately not yet in Australia, um, but it is approved in a number of Asian countries, um, countries in the mi Middle East and elsewhere. So we'll continue to roll that out um, geographically um, and potentially you know, sign up someone to to market that product for us in those in those territories. Given that we're not really a, a company which is equipped to you know to to market consumer um, consumer products in many many countries, um, uh, the bacterial vaginosis product the. Um, uh, it's actually marketed in Australia as Fleurstat, but it's also called VivaGel BV, which is using that same Dendromer active, active ingredient, which has, um, uh, interestingly, an effect on biofilm and anaerobic bacteria. Um, that That's uh, in the process of um, reassigning some commercial distribution arrangements. Um, and then beyond that, we have another partnered program using the DEP technology. We've talked about oncology today specifically, but obviously there are other drugs which suffer from solubility issues, including things like antifungal, systemic antifungal drugs, um, uh, and where you might want to have a targeting uh, approach. And so we do have some, most of our partnered programs <clears throat> are oncology. As I said, the Merck one is specifically ADCs. Um, the Genentech one is is in in the oncology space, but we do have a <clears throat> a partnership with a Chinese company, which is an anti-infective agent, mm. where we are using the technology to modify solubility and biodistribution because we can modify half life um, and we can through the size of the dendroma keep it out of certain tissues if if we're seeking to do so. So. Um, we've looked at a range of other things and we've had interest in antivirals, insulins um, and a variety of other applications. But um, oncology is the area where it gets most interest, I think, because of those narrow therapeutic windows. Mm. Fascinating. Well, thank you very much for your time. Um, it's much appreciated um, on behalf of certainly myself as well as Nectar. And th thanks to our listeners for, for listening. Um, so. Um, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.